Wow. There is nothing better than you, Lord. And uh, what, a, what a blessing that is, you know, that, that he is our God and, and he is awesome. And, um, you know, it's a, a real blessing and encouragement just to uh, be with you all this morning, to see you, to, to worship together with you. What a blessing it is. Uh, thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship. Uh, what a blessing it is to have such talented people that are able to lead us in worship. And uh, thank you. Thank you very much. You know, this morning, I just want to be an encouragement to you. Um, and I know that there's a lot of things around us that are going on in our world that, that can be depressing. And um, we, we watch the news, we see things, we hear things, and we can't meet like we want to meet. And just a, a lot of things that are disturbing and, I want to say, discouraging to us. And this morning, I just want to talk about dealing with opposition. We see this in the, in the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 4. And uh, we're a little over halfway through our, our eight-step process here in a vision for leaders for uh, in Nehemiah. And today, dealing with opposition. You know, beginning, we, we, we had to prepare for the vision in order to receive the vision that, we, that God gives us. And then we have to define that vision and, and figure out what that looks like and what that means. And then we have to plant that vision with other people around us as leaders. And then we have to share that vision. We need to implement that vision. And now comes the time to deal with opposition. And um, this is uh, applicable to all of us because if you are stepping out in any way uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going you're gonna to endure some opposition. And, um, you know, if anyone, if anyone in the Old Testament <laughs> should have encountered no opposition, it probably should have been Nehemiah. I mean, think about this. He was trying to rebuild that wall around the city of Jerusalem that would make Jerusalem a safe place for all of the Jews and all of her inhabitants. He was building this wall around Jerusalem that would regain a, a piece of Jerusalem's lost glory. And he was also building this that would, that would enable the people to once again to worship in the temple without interruption in, the, in Jerusalem. So you would think that he would not have opposition from people around him. He's doing something good for them, but also for God. My point is this, is that anyone who is trying to do something for God will face opposition. We need to understand that. We need to expect that. That anytime we step out and try to do something for God, the enemy is not going to like that. The devil the accuser, the one who is out to destroy, to kill, steal, and destroy. He is not going to like it when we do something for the Lord. And so we're going to get, we're going to receive opposition. You know, you remember the Peanuts cartoon, Linus? Uh, once he said to his sister Lucy, after uh, she had done something mean again to him, he said, big sisters are like the crabgrass in the lawn of life. <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's so funny because it's like we, we, we know people like that, don't we? Who are like the crabgrass in the lawn of life. Folks, expect criticism and be ready for it. See, the enemies of God will do everything in their power to come against God and His work. And they will never sit idly by without a ruthless fight, so expect it. You know, in our lives and also in Scripture... 
A severe crisis often follows a series of successes. When we have a series of successes in our life and we think, hey man, everything's going great. What happens is often a crisis, a severe crisis follows that. And it, 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 it's, it's discouraging to us. You know, our enemy doesn't like it when things are going well in God's kingdom. You remember in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, how we saw Nehemiah prayed. He heard about the destruction that would, had happened, that there was nothing going on uh, in, in positive that was going on in Jerusalem. And so he began to pray. And in chapter 2, we saw that how God moved him from prosperity. He was the king's cupbearer. He moved him from prosperity to a desolate Jerusalem, a dry, dusty land in need of tremendous repair. I mean, he went from the top position in all of the known world to this isolated place that seemed deserted and really God forsaken. I mean, that's where God put him. And you can, you can imagine as he's praying through this, last week and the week before we talked about, uh, we were introduced to the wall workers and those who were working on the wall and we discovered that in kingdom work, no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. We all have a responsibility in that because we live here. And we, this is where we live. This is what we do. And, and so we all have a responsibility in that as a believer, as a, as a member of the body of Christ. And because they worked hard, and because they were diligent, I love this, the construction project was really zipping along great. But then we come to chapter 4. We come to chapter 4 and things start to get more complicated for Nehemiah. I mean, with a little bit of hint of sarcasm, sometimes when everything seems to be going well, you obviously overlook something. I mean, right? I mean, when things get are going really well, you think, well, what am I missing here? You're waiting for the, the other shoe to drop. You, you know, it's like, man, what is, what is happening? That's what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 4. I want to read the, the, this chapter. It's a little bit lengthy, but bear with me. Um, we're, as we read through this, just listen for God at work in this. And um, I, I, we'll, we'll go and break it down from there. But uh, let's read in Nehemiah chapter 4. Great passage. Great passage. It says, Now it came about after that when when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Then Nehemiah praise here in verse 4. He says, Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up 
for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you. For they have demoralized the builders. Verse 6. So we built the wall and the whole wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. Now when Sanballat... Tobiah, the the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that their breaches began to be closed. They were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to create a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God. And because of them... We set up a guard against them day and night. Verse 10. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. Yet there is much rubbish. And we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Our enemies said they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Verse 13, Nehemiah says, Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and exposed places. And I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, for your sons, for your daughters, your wives, and your houses. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan. Then all of us returned to the wall and each one to his work. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows and the breastplates. And captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded on his side, at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall from one, far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work with half of them holding their spears from dawn until the stars appeared. At that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servants spend the night within Jerusalem so they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon even to the water. Loving Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for the example of your word. Father, I pray that each of us today, as we hear your word, Father, it would, it would go in and, and sink deeply into our hearts and into our minds. 
And Father, that you would discern through your Holy Spirit what you are doing in each of our lives. Father, I pray that you would help each of us to apply it to the situations that we deal with day in and day out. Father, that because of your word, we would be wiser. Because of your word, we would not fear. Because of your word, we would stand and get the work done that you have for us to do. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Thank you for encouraging us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I would submit to you this morning that coronavirus is not the only plague that is sweeping around this world today. I mean, our enemy, the devil, is is also spreading the disease of discouragement. And we need to be encouraged. You know, there's three factors here that make it such a potential problem. The first one is that it's universal. Everyone that you have ever known has experienced discouragement at some time or another. It's universal. It's also recurring because you can be discouraged over and over again. And you can actually be discouraged because you are discouraged and discouraging to others in that. So it's also highly contagious. Discouragement spreads by casual contact. Might be a comment, comment, might be a look, might be something else. But we all get discouraged from time to time. And this morning we're going to focus on not only the causes of discouragement, but also the cures for discouragement. So let's begin by looking at those causes. There's two main types of discouragement. One is external, coming from outside, and one is internal, coming from within. And I I want to just kind of highlight those. Let's look first at these external causes. You know, the wall workers, we read last week, they were excited about working on the wall. They were excited about what God was doing and and rebuilding the the wall in Jerusalem and rebuilding Jerusalem. And so they were, they were exuberant about it. They were excited about it. And they were, they began with joy and, 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 and just anticipation, great anticipation of what God had for them. And it says in Nehemiah, uh, verse 6 here, 4-6, it says, at the end of that, it says, For the people had a mind to work. Literally, it means, that word mind means their heart was in it. They had a heart to work. They, They put their all into it. They were all in and they were working hard with that. And things were going well. The people were excited and the wall was going up. That same verse says that the wall was built up to half, uh, half of its height. I think that's huge because that means that all the breaches kind of had been covered and there was a wall, half of the, the height that it was going to be, all around Jerusalem. And what I'm saying is the people got after it. They were working hard and everybody was all in. What a beautiful thing to see. Getting the work started on the wall was a major achievement. I mean, getting something moving, getting some momentum behind you. I mean, if anybody here has ever tried to start a ministry, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Getting some momentum behind you is great. It helps. Because once it gets rolling, it picks up some steam and, and kind of takes on its own energy, if you will. But that, that initial investment must have been very tiring uh, for Nehemiah, trying to get everybody all together, facing the same direction, moving out, building the wall. But once he had that, man, things were going great. The wall was going up. But keeping the workers working proved to be a much tougher assignment. You know, someone said, exhilaration is that feeling you get just after 
a great idea hits you. And right before you realize what's wrong with it. You know, you're, you're, you're giddy with excitement. You're like, man, I got this great idea. And then you realize, oh, I don't know if that can happen because of this or this or this. See, where God is at work, the enemy is also at work. Rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem was certainly no exception to this. Because when people take on kingdom priorities, when you and I take on kingdom priorities, and we take those priorities serious, Satan stirs up agitators to block the work of God. See, these enemies, they use two types of external forces. The first one is ridicule. They began to ridicule the people who were working on the wall. They began to mock them. This is the third time that Sanballat is mentioned in, in, in Nehemiah. And he was Nehemiah's stiffest competition. He was the opposition. And every time we read about him, he's standing Against the work of God, rejecting, ridiculing everything that Nehemiah is trying to accomplish. You know, I've also heard that ridicule is the language of the devil. He wants us to feel incompetent. He wants us to feel uh, less or inferior. You know, those who can stand bravely when being shot at, they very well may fall under ridicule. When someone begins to mock them and mock what they're doing. See, the enemy, the enemy often insults the servants of God. The enemy wants to mock. I mean, you think about this. Goliath, the giant, he ridiculed David when the shepherd boy met him with only a sling in his hand. He began to ridicule him. The soldiers, they mocked Jesus. During his trial and the crowd, they taunted him while he was doing our work on the cross. They taunted him. It's the one in the trenches that they are ridiculing. It's the one who's doing the work that they are mocking and making fun of and, 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 and ridiculing. And it's, it's Jesus that they mocked. It's David. It's us. See, Sanballat and his cronies, they began to ridicule the workers, even before the work started, if you turn back to uh, Nehemiah 2.19, it talks about that they mocked and they despised us. Here in chapter 4, get this, Sanballat is making a speech in front of his brothers, but also in front of, it says, the wealthy, the wealthy, wealthiest men in, in Samaria. Basically the army, the army of Samaria, of Samaria. So what he's doing is he's ridiculing the workers in front of an army. Now, now when what he says makes a lot of sense, because it intensifies the power of this ridicule. He's making fun of them with an army behind him. And he says, what are these feeble Jews doing? I mean, that word feeble means withered and miserable. What are these feeble, withered and miserable men trying to do here? He's putting them down in front of this army and he asks these five taunting questions. What are they doing? <laughs> are you going to restore this wall yourselves? 
I mean, they must, that must have made the, the Samaritan army laugh. You know, they probably broke out into laughter. I mean, how could a remnant, just a few of these feeble Jews, hope to build a wall strong enough to protect the city from a mighty army? <laughs> Look at what these guys are doing. He's making fun of them in front of a power which could thwart that. I think that's huge. Can they offer sacrifices? See, Sanballat is saying that they it's going to take more than prayer and worship for you to build this wall, to rebuild this city. And then he says, can they finish in a day? Suggesting that the workers have no idea how difficult the task is that they've undertook. You guys started doing this, but are you going to be able to stop? Do you have the endurance to take that it takes to finish the job? Because Sanballat doesn't believe that they do. Then he says, can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Can they bring these stones back to life? (laughs) Indicates that their building materials were so old, so damaged, so dusty. They've broken down and they're, they're probably digging through the dust and the rubble to find a decent stone to put on the wall. Then in verse 3, look at Tobiah. He has to chime in. Tobiah the Ammonite. He was near him and said, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. He's making fun of them. He's chiming in. You know, the archaeological excavations of this wall showed that these walls were nine feet thick. A little fox is not going to break down that wall. These archaeological excavations, they proved that that it was a a worthy wall. It was a worthy project. And the workers became the punchline of every joke. Look at what they're doing. Oh, these guys aren't going to make it. Everyone got a laugh at their expense. And Tobiah probably hoped that his sarcasm would make the builders, you know, give them an apprehensive glance and at their hard work and activate them and really create in them an avalanche of discouragement. That's what he was hoping for. Brothers and sisters, whenever you attempt to get involved with the work of God, you will always face ridicule. Expect it. And don't stop working. The second cause for the external discouragement was oppression. Look at verse 7 and 8. Now when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on, they, the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. See, the enemy moved from being bothered, annoyed, to becoming angry and actually conspiring to fight against it, to stir up trouble in Jerusalem. You know, Warren Wiersbe, he, he writes this. He says, God's people sometimes have difficulty working together. But the people of the world, they have no problem uniting in opposition to the work of the, wor- of the Lord. See, these references that we see in verse 7 and 8 are to the four points of the compass. In the middle, you have Jerusalem. 
To the north, you have Sanballat and the Samaritans. You know, to the east, you have Tobiah and the Ammonites. To the west, you have Ashdod, the Philistines and that area over there. To the south, you have Geshem and the Arabs. So they're surrounded basically by the enemies. And you see that in this verse, that they're being all surrounded and they live in constant fear of being ambushed. They don't know which direction it's going to come from. (laughs) But that's not all. There's more. See, pressures from without often create problems within. Opposition on the outside can lead us to depression on the inside. It wasn't the voice of the enemy That was the most pervasive. It was the voice of God's own people that really caused the discouragement. And just like today, it's so easy for us to internalize the words of the enemy and to feel like giving up. Notice the first part of verse 10. Verse 10 says, thus in Judah it was said. This is what you're hearing in Judah these days. (laughs) Discouragement first started within the royal tribe of Judah. I mean, they had David's blood in their veins. If you would have thought somebody would have had faith, somebody would have had courage, it would have been the people of Judah. This is what is being heard in Judah. They looked upon the leaders, they were looked on as as leaders and pace setters. And if the tribe of Judah was bummed out, then the rest of the Israelites were going to be bummed out and discouraged because they were the leaders. I want to submit to you that the first cause of internal discouragement is fatigue. Fatigue. They had been getting after the wall. They had been working hard. They'd put their, their, the sweat, you know, into the sweat equity. They'd, they'd put their arms and bodies to work. They'd been building this wall. They'd been working hard on it. They'd build it up to half of its height. They'd been very busy. They had gotten after it. But simply put, the workers were tired. It says there, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. This phrase, failing, carries the idea of staggering, of tottering around, of stumbling. You know, when you're physically drained, it's very easy to become discouraged at the slightest problem. It's interesting to notice that when the workers became fatigued and discouraged, it says the wall was already built to its half of its height. And that's because in any project, the first half usually goes quickly. It's the second half of pressing on and pressing through that really takes a lot out of us. You know, when you're first starting a project, it's exciting. But then it might become mundane and boring. And like, why am I doing this? And when you've got somebody ridiculing you and making fun of you for doing what God has called you to do, it's no different When the newness wears off, the work becomes boring and it's easy for us to become fatigued. And when you're tired, it's easy to become discouraged and to begin thinking you're never going to finish the job. What did they say in the last part of verse 10? Yet there is much rubbish and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. 
They'd put their heart, they'd put their mind into it, and now they are saying, we ourselves are unable to build the wall. What happened? At some point, they were discouraged. They became discouraged because they were aggravated with the situation. They're digging through this dust and rubble. I'm sure the Sahara dust cloud has nothing on them. Because they're digging through it in order to find one stone to put on the wall. Each stone is a work in and of itself. This junk is everywhere. And it's just so frustrating. Can you imagine that? You've been there. I have too. Where there's just so much junk. It's like, where do I begin? Where do I start? And unfortunately, some of our lives are that way. There's so much junk. It's like, where do I start? And it's discouraging to us. Why do you think God has this message for us today? Because we get discouraged. Because there's so much junk going on. Just like they did. We can lose sight of our goal when we have too much garbage in our life. You know, Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Folks, that is my help. He's sitting at the right hand of God. But despising the shame, he, he gives us the endurance. Now, I, the writer of Hebrews is telling us, put it aside. Whatever the junk is, put it aside. Don't let it trip you up. Keep running. See, I don't know. I don't know what the rubble is in your life. It might be the internet. It might be social media. It might be a possession that you're holding on to. Or it might be an unhealthy relationship. Is there a sin that you've been playing around with? Are you involved in some other kind of entanglement that is tripping you up? Something that you've been doing in secret that you think no one else knows about? As the writer of Hebrews says, he says, throw it off so that you don't get tripped up. Get rid of it. We can get frustrated, but we have to do something about it. Another cause for discouragement is fear. <laughs> the enemies of the Lord's work had struck fear into the hearts of God's people, and they felt like giving up. They said, we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Did you notice what Nehemiah verse 12 says? Who gets afraid the quickest? It says, when the Jews who lived near them. Who is them? It's Sanballat. It's Tobiah. It's Geshem. It's the Ashdodites. The Jews who lived near them. 
and told us 10 times. They didn't say it once. They kept repeating this over and over and over. And this is how the rumor gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. They told us 10 times they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Wow. Listen, those most affected by fear are those who live near pessimistic people. You want to limit the depressing thoughts that bring fear into your life? Then it's best not to hang around with negative people. Oh, we're going to tear you up. We're going to tear that wall down. We're going to attack you and you're not going to know where we're coming. We're going to come at you, you know, in all directions. And they're believing this. And they've been hearing it ten times over and over and over. And they begin to believe it. And so they are filled with fear. It's like the old saying, if you're going to soar with the eagles, you can't run around with turkeys. Brothers and sisters, don't be turkeys. Fear puts us in a frame of mind where we can not only become discouraged, but we can also be deceived. Now, spoiler alert. I mean, I don't want to spoil any ending for you. But since I imagine that most of you have already read through, reading ahead, the book of Nehemiah. If you haven't, you should. But I'm going to give it away. The enemies never do attack Jerusalem. At the end of the day, Sanballat, Tobiah, all of these people that are saying they're going to attack are nothing. They're using nothing but words. Empty words. They never do attack Jerusalem. There you have it. It's just words. It's just the enemy. You know, in the book called Sacred, excuse me, Scared to Life. There's a fellow by the name of Douglas Rumford. He cites a study that shows why we shouldn't let fear rule our lives. These are some interesting statistics. 60%, 60% of our fears are totally unfounded. 60%. 20% are already behind us. We've already passed through that. We've already dealt with that. 10% are so petty that they, they don't make any difference at all. You know how it is. You, you think about it and it gets worked up in your mind and you think it's going to be this terrible meeting or whatever and it doesn't happen. 10% are so petty they don't make any difference. 5% of our fears are real, but we can't do anything about them. The other 5% are real, but we can do something about them. So there's actually 5% of your fears that are real that you can't do anything about. The other 95% we shouldn't even worry about. See, I don't want to leave you without hope today. and I'm going to move through this very quickly. Now that we know some of the causes, ridicule and oppression, that can lead to that internal stuff, fatigue and frustration and fear, I want you to know that discouragement is curable. This is good news. You don't have to live with this chronic condition anymore. 
Three cures for discouragement. The first one is to request God's help. Nehemiah requested God's help in chapter 1 in, verse, in, in, in Jerusalem, for Jerusalem. And in chapter 2, he prayed for a change of priorities. <laughs> I mean, think about this. He went through his... We, we see his popcorn prayer in chapter 2 before the king, where he voices a prayer real quick. And then in, in uh, verses 4 and 5, he says, Hear, O God, how we are despised. This is quite some prayer. Now, if you read this, you know, it says, Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. He wasn't praying that they become believers. But instead, he was praying for God to judge them. I mean, it was a, it was an honest prayer. It was an understandable prayer. But he knew that the enemies were fighting against God and against his work. So he asked God to deal with them. He didn't politicize it. He didn't go out and garner support for his new campaign. He didn't, he didn't, you know, give lectures to the workers. He didn't organize raiding parties to go take their weapons away from them or, or create propaganda uh, campaigns to put a, a different spin on it. No, he prayed and he asked God. To do what only God could do. Here's the principle we can learn from Nehemiah. When people talk against you. When people talk against you. Don't talk back. Talk to God. When people talk against you. Don't talk back. Don't get ugly with them. Don't stoop to that level. Go higher. Talk to God. Let him know. Because that's exactly what Nehemiah did. They were disparaging the work. They were making fun of the work. They were, they were causing the workers to murmur and, 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 and rumor among themselves about when they were going to get attacked and all this. He just began talking to God. Tell God about it. See, when their enemies started talking, Nehemiah continued to pray and the people continued to work. Secondly, I would say this. The second cure is to reorganize your priorities. I mean, Nehemiah had already organized the people in chapter 3 and they'd finished half of their work. However, a new situation had come about that required a change in organization. And many times, you know, if the enemy were going to attack, they would most likely do that in the most vulnerable points, the weakest points. So Nehemiah put guards at the most vulnerable spots. This served two purposes. It discouraged the enemy, but it encouraged the workers because now they felt like they could... They could work without fear. See, when you're discouraged, you need to reorganize your priorities. And you can look at your own life. You can adopt a change of approach instead of becoming discouraged, so discouraged that you quit. And do you have a problem in your marriage? If so, don't bail on your spouse. Change your approach. Adopt a new attitude. Get some help. You have a problem with your job? Don't give up. Change your priorities. You have a problem in your walk with God? Don't stop following Jesus. Reorganize your schedule so you can meet with Him on a regular basis. Plugging into Him. Plug into a small group. Don't be overcome by discouragement. Do something about it. I love this. 
Because all Nehemiah did is he said, you know what? We're going to keep working. We're going to keep praying. Oh, yeah, we're going to put guards out. He made an adjustment. He made an audible in the midst of this. It's so important because we have to work as hard as we can and we have to pray as hard as we can. And somewhere in the middle, God meets us. And I think that's that's huge. If you want to defeat discouragement, the third thing you can do, and I'm almost done, is to remember who God is. You know, after looking everything over and sensing the discouragement within his team, Nehemiah rallied his troops. <laughs> he rallied his team. Verse 14. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. I don't know about you. Sometimes it's easy for me to forget God when times are good or when they're really bad. We get swept up into the, the, the stuff of life, the daily stuff that's going on. I need to be reminded that God is always there. So how do you remember the Lord? By remembering that He's always there for you. We're to remember that He's great and that He's awesome. That God is more able to deal with your discouragement than you are. So when you're down, turn your attention from your discouragement to the one who is able to do something about it. God's been faithful to you in the past. He has been so faithful to each one of us in the past. We're still here. We're still working. We're still serving. We're still doing Because God has protected us. He has taken care of us. He's faithful to you today. It's not an accident that you're here today. He's faithful to you. He's feeding you. He's showing you that He loves you. And His promises are that He will be faithful to us in the future. Oh, I can't wait. It's about to get good. The closer I get to that point, the more excited I get. Remember the Lord. Remember His promises. Remember His goodness. Remember His power. You serve the God who spoke this entire world into being. What should you fear? Nothing. Nothing. In Him we have life. In Him we have eternal life. What can the world do? See, we get tuned into the world and we forget who we serve. We forget who our backup is. Who's advocating for us at the throne of God. Our God is great. And He is awesome. Remember Him. See, if all you focus on is the junk in your life. If all you're looking at is those dusty stones that are burned up. And all that dust that you have to... All that junk and garbage that you have to dig through to get one little thing that's workable. If all you do is look at the junk in other people's lives, you will be discouraged. You're looking in the garbage heap. Who wouldn't be discouraged? Look up. 
Raise your eyes. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. You see, God has made a way for each of us through his son, Jesus Christ. He came to earth. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross, a horrible death to pay your sin debt and mine, a debt that we could not pay. He paid for us. His love spans the entire globe. I don't care where you live. It doesn't matter what you've done. No matter how discouraged we've been, he has stretched out his everlasting arms for each one of us. And as a result, we can live, we can work free without fear, without discouragement, protected, safe, and secure for all eternity. See, discouragement can be defeated as we request his help, as we reorganize our priorities, and as we remember who he is. My encouragement to you this morning, whatever you're going through, look to Jesus this morning. See, my hope is built on nothing less. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time and thank you for your word. Father, your Holy Spirit is at work and live and moving in this place. And Father, I ask that you would draw us to you. Father, your Holy Spirit glorifies the Son. The Son magnifies the Father. And so I ask God that you would just clearly show us how awesome you are. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would draw us to you, that, Father, whatever it is that we are going through, Father, that we would look to you. Father, that we would remember who you are, that we would reorganize our priorities, Father, that, that we would ask and request your help. Your word says that if we ask for wisdom, you won't withhold it. Father, you are our hope. You are the hope for our lives, for the, the this disease that is spreading the world. Father, you are the hope for our homes, for our marriages, for our nation. You are the hope for our families. You are the hope, Father, of this entire world. It rests in you. And Father, we trust you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice for us. And it is our joy to honor you. It is our joy to worship you. Father, I pray that today that we would remember who you are and we would request your help. Father, help us as we reorganize our priorities. We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.